Today's episode of the Hot 4 Podcast is sponsored by Lalaman Brewing. Lalaman's presence in the brewing industry dates from the early 1970s when the company started producing dried pure culture brewing yeasts for beer kit manufacturers in Canada. In subsequent years, this activity was expanded to the production of other specific ale and lager beer yeast strains for different clients in the United States, Europe, Australia and Asia. Supported by decades of long-standing industry experience, an extensive support network and strong technical expertise, Lanaman Brewing is positioned to help your brewery achieve its growth and quality goals. Beyond unparalleled global technical support and expertise, we offer an extensive range of products, services and education. Whether you're a startup, a global leader in peer production or anywhere in between, we have something for you. At Lanaman Brewing, we brew with you. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello, beer nerds, and welcome to an almighty yeast of a show this week where we're talking all things fermentation. I doubt there is a topic that genuinely gets brewers out of bed more than yeast. Just ask them a question like, how does chronically depleted oxygen resources affect fermentation across yeast generations? Or better still, get them to recall anecdotally a particular problem they had with their yeast that they finally resolved after sleepless nights churning it over in their mind and pouring through textbooks troubleshooting and watch their eyes light up with wild excitement. Maybe you're not like that, but I certainly am. And hopefully you'll hear the full extent of my nerdery from this conversation I had with Andrew Patterson, technical sales manager for Lalamand in the UK and Scandinavia. I certainly went off grid on numerous occasions from the pre-prepared questions, wanting to explore the realms and depths of sour pitchers, fermenting high gravity worts and the technicalities of why certain yeast strains can't be dried. Many brewers, even some large ones, rely on the variety of dried yeast available for both consistency and to add to their palate and repertoire. And what day and age to live in as a brewer, where we have access to dried yeast varieties that are able to produce moderate amounts of lactic acid in addition to ethanol in one simple fermentation step, or provide prominent notes of apricot and undertones of tropical fruit and citrus that merge seamlessly with hop aromas perfect for big, juicy IPAs. It's almost like being able to reach out and touch the gods. Only... They're not gods. They're tiny single-celled organisms that, as beer writer Pete Brown so eloquently puts it, eat sugar and farts out carbon dioxide and alcohol. For me, brewing better beer ultimately comes down to how well you're able to control your fermentation profile. 
Your IBUs might be in endless harmony with a perfectly multi-backbone, like a classic Beach Boys song. But under pitch, over pitch, don't oxygenate enough at the start, introduce oxygen later on, crash too early, raise the temperature too late, cap the beer with CO2 too early towards the end of fermentation, and just about anything and everything that these sensitive little buggers don't like, and a whole myriad of problems will, as I say, keep you awake at night. Believe me, I've been there, trawling the web at 2am, wondering why my beer is suffering from acetaldehyde that only I seem to be able to pick upon. I hope you get a lot out of this episode with Andrew. I know I certainly did. And with good reason. Having cut his teeth at Brewdog, he went on to become the head brewer for West Sussex Dark Star for six years before moving into technical sales with Lalamand. As you may have heard, this episode has been sponsored by Lalamand Brewing. However, at the time of recording this episode, we were speaking solely on the basis of having a topical discussion about yeast rather than a quid for pro arrangement. And I just want to be upfront and put that out there. Their sponsorship has come subsequent to the initial reason we had this conversation in the first place, which was to talk about dried yeast. However, I have used Lalaman yeast before on many occasions and I'm particularly fond of their London ESB strain which was a great addition to many stouts that I made whilst at the Sheffield Brewery Company that had a smooth, silky mouthfeel. So while we're talking about smooth, silky mouthfeels, as you do, I think it's time for one last round of... Since lockdown in March, I've been on a bit of a quest to promote both breweries I've known and loved through this humble little show, and I've been fortunate to receive beers from many brewers across the UK and Europe even, making new friends and discovering some hidden gems along the way. However, unless there is a huge outcry from listeners with threats to boycott the show and burn all your Beatles records, I think Brewery Shoutouts for now has reached its natural conclusion. For anyone familiar with listening to this podcast, you'll know that things morph and develop over time. And I have some new plans on my sleeve to progress the beer tasting element to the podcast, because let's face it, we all love listening to a good tasting session. So for one last time, for now, will you raise your glasses with me as we give a brewery shout out to one more brewery. And this week, I'm proud to say it's to my good friends based at Truth Hurts Brew Co. Truth Hurts are a great little brewery in South Leeds with a cool little independent bottle shop and tap room called Beer 30. I've had the privilege of designing their recent cans and clips and wanted to introduce to you a collaboration of intergalactic proportions between True Hertz Bruco and C84 Bruco. Jimmy Shoe is, wait for it, a salted caramel imperial shoe pastry stout. Yes, you heard me. A salted caramel imperial shoe pastry stout. At a smooth and silky 7.5%, it is made with more shoe pastry and salted caramel than you can fit inside a Death Star. So for the benefit of the tape, one last time, I'm going to crack this bad boy open and taste it live on air, so to speak, to, to whet your appetite and talk a little bit about this great beer. So um, I did all the artwork for this, so I'm super pleased with how it looks naturally. But the beer itself, I'm not going to lie to you, I have had this before. 
So it's got a lovely vanilla aroma to it. Oh, smooth and silky. Choice words of the day. So it's got that lovely roasted quality to it. You get that bitterness up front, but then you get this sweet, salted caramel, vanilla-y, chocolatey taste that just sort of lingers at the end. I mean, I can see why uh, Jimmy Shoe's been getting rave reviews on Untapped. And if you're in the market for a light, refreshing, crisp lager to counterbalance all that pastry, then make sure you buy some of their Rebel Lager while you're at it, because that's also a really good beer. Um, mm, it's just delicious, that. It's like drinking a hybrid of shoe pastry and Death Star oil. It's, <laughs> if you can imagine that. Um, but it's a lovely beer and I've heard really great things. So if you want to try it, which I thoroughly recommend you do and that you check out the uh, <coughs> awesome artwork, uh, head over to beer30.cells.com and cells is spelled S-E-L-Z. So that's beer30, the number 30, beer30.cells.com and pick up some straight talking beer from the north along with a whole host of other great craft breweries from the region and from across the country. As we call time on brewery shout outs for now, you'll be pleased to know each and every week in this new segment, we've partnered with Brew School to highlight the latest jobs and opportunities from the brewing industry here in the UK. And this week's featured job is for an assistant brewer to cover a full-time position at the McKellar Brew Pub in London during the next six months. If you're extremely passionate and talented with a sharp eye for detail, a love of brewing great beer, and a desire to be part of a dynamic and exciting company, McKellar are looking for you. Brewing skills are a must and preferably you thrive in a flexible environment where you sometimes must handle different tasks at the same time. The job will entail working in a constantly growing business where the demand for their beer is only going up. You'll be working closely with their head brewer mark, but there will still be a lot of responsibility and the need for independence within the position. You will be part of an amazing group of colleagues working in the brewery, bar and kitchen. If you can see yourself thriving in this fast-paced and fun environment, send your application over to the McKellar Brew Pub via brewing-jobs.com. That's brewing-jobs.com. Hit the apply to this job button, upload your CV and covering letter and get ready for a career in brewing by heading over to brewing-jobs.com today. As ever, you can follow us on all the socials at Hop Forward Beers. Join our growing Facebook group by searching Hop Forward in the groups where you can meet like-minded individuals and other beer professionals from a broad spectrum from within the industry. And visit our website for more insights and podcasts like this one and to see a snapshot of the kind of work we do with brewers, bars, bottle shops and businesses in the world of beer. So let's take a deep dive into the world of yeast with Andrew Patterson, technical sales manager for Lalamand in the UK and Scandinavia. Today on the Hot Foot Podcast, I'm joined by Andrew Patterson, technical sales manager for Lalamand in the UK and Scandinavia. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you. The sun is out today. What a 
anomaly that is <laughs> i mean it's, i have to say like i live quite close to the south coast and pretty much since the start of lockdown until yesterday it's been reasonably nice isn't it? yeah a lot of those did you have any of those mad storms that a lot of the country was having recently we, we actually missed most of them oh. weirdly <laughs> and, and actually it's kind of unfortunate i like a good storm but um yeah we didn't get much there was this one where um, I think it kind of went up the west coast, and I'm in mean, Sheffield, so we, we, we got some of it as well as it travelled over the Pennines. We had a couple of hours where it was lightning like every few seconds, but there was no rain. And it was like, have you ever seen like an adaptation of War of the Worlds or something? Yes. You know, it was a, it was a little bit like that, thinking it's like some kind of like you know asteroid gonna come and hit earth that's actually an alien spacecraft and then it started raining and honestly it was like it was biblical i've never seen anything like it it sounds sounds fun to be honest it was fun it was i uh i've got a lot of friends around here because this is a bit of a wine um region as far as the uk goes and i've got a few friends that work in wineries around here and they dread the storms at this time of year because if you get hailstones Mm. and it takes the grapes out and so we were actually i don't know quite lucky that we didn't get it because it would have been disastrous for yeah. the local wineries just out of interest before we, we talk about um beer production and yeast do, do you do many uh, yeast for wines i presume you will with it, we, we actually do yeah although um in Lanaman we very much segment the different industries off right. so while i cover brewing and i have contacts within the wine division i don't actually cover any of the technical support for wine stuff myself um, mm. and the same with distilling as well so we have the three separate divisions we have distilling winemaking and brewing right and i'm very much brewing Right. So before we get technical about yeast, then, um, can you give us a bit of background about who you are and how you got into the beer industry and how you ended up working for Lalaman doing what you do? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because I think of myself as being like a relative newcomer in the industry, but I actually look back and, and I've been in it for, for quite some time now. Hmm. Um, so I, uh, I did a biochemistry degree at Edinburgh University. Um, and although my, uh, my accent doesn't really, you know, bring it across, I'm actually technically a Scot. I was born in Edinburgh and uh, I moved oh, to the wow. West Country with my family when I was younger. Right. Um, and I went back up to Edinburgh University and I studied biochemistry. And I really, really enjoyed it. And at the end of that four years uh, doing biochemistry, I thought, well, what do I actually want to do with myself? And I thought to myself, I don't really know. Um, and like, like with most universities, I suppose, they try and push you towards either research or some sort of financial thing. You know, they look at you and they're like, oh, you're good with numbers. You should go into finance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> couldn't really imagine anything worse. Like sitting at a desk all day just isn't really my thing. Um, so I was chatting this through with my family um, and they actually suggested the whiskey industry. Um, so I was initially looking at the whiskey industry. So I decided to do the uh, Masters in Brewing and Distilling at Harriet Watt, which right, is yeah. um, based at Harriet Watt, just outside of Edinburgh City Centre, um, which was a really, really great year. Uh, I think there was 30 of us in the year group, um, and there was maybe five from the UK, four from Ireland, and then the rest of the, the team were from you know Canada, the States, bits of Europe, um, somebody from Japan. So it was a really kind of nice, diverse bunch. Mm. We had a really, really great year. It's debatable as to how much work we actually did, um, <laughs> but, but we had a great time. Um, and at the end of that, I was like, mm, you know, I, I, I do like whiskey, and I like the idea of working in the whiskey industry, but all my friends and family uh, now live in the southwest of England. And therefore i don't know planning your career to be in in whiskey is kind of almost isolating yourself right so all the distilleries are up in the highlands Mm. and i thought maybe maybe brewing's the better way to go and um my father-in-law was actually a brewer as well so i I spoke 
to him about it, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, give 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 brewing a whirl over distilling." Um, started applying for jobs, and my first job was at Brewdog. Um, in 2000, and it was either 2011 or 2012, um, and at that stage, Brewdog was based in Fraserburgh, which is on the north east coast of Scotland, kind yep. of north and east of Aberdeen, quite far away from everything. I, I think I think that you know, one thing that really brought it home was that it was over an hour's drive to the nearest cinema, which for me was uh, wow. was was new, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, so. That was fun. I, I, I lived in Fraserburgh for about eight months. Um, I lived in a little flat in High Street with one of my Harriet Watt buddies who was uh, a Canadian. And we worked really, really long shifts, really, really hard, entirely manual, brewing around the clock and pushing out punk IPA. And I have to say, like, it, it was an awful lot of fun. You know, it was a real sense of camaraderie around the team because mm. it was just you guys in this fishing town on the north piece of, east coast of Scotland with not a great deal to do. And, uh, you know, only one pub that we liked to go in, <laughs> if, you, if you get my drift. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, that was that, and I enjoyed that. And um, I probably could have seen myself staying there for, for some time because it was really good experience. Um, but my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, um, so I know it was the right decision, was um, studying teacher training in Bristol. And the, uh, you know, the long distance between Bristol and, and Aberdeen, not ideal. Um, so I started looking for jobs uh, in the south, it wasn't really fussy, you know, London, southeast, southwest, Wales, anywhere would have been fine. Uh, and I came across uh, Darkstar. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, applied for the job at uh, Darkstar, was initially employed by uh, Jen Merrick, who went yep. on to Beaver Town, um, and took up the role there as a brewer. And I ended up being at Darkstar for six years and progressing up to, to head brewer, um, and left uh, in the end of 2017, it would have been. Um, just before they were bought out yes. by Fuller's, yeah. um, kind of saw that the writing was on the wall and was like, mm, I think I might do something else. So um, so I did something else, and, and that was join uh, Lalamand, which is obviously a bit of a change. I'm going from being a production brewer, running the production at, at Darkstar, to doing technical support and sales for uh, a yeast company. And it, it's funny because um, brewing I really enjoyed. Um, but I think it's quite tough to get rewarded in the way that you'd like for, yes. for the work that you're doing. It's very hard work for not a great deal of reward. Um, and since joining Lalamand, you know, I haven't really looked back. It's, it's my sort of thing. It's really interesting technical stuff. And I get to go out and about around the country. I get to visit really interesting, innovative little breweries. And I get to travel as well. So I have to say it's, it's been a really great move for me. And I've loved every minute of it so far. Yeah. Um, just out of interest, which brewery is your father-in-law at? Uh, he's he's not anymore. He's uh he's uh, retired. Oh. But he he's he's been around and about. So uh you know, the old school breweries, Bass, uh, Green King, Hardys and Hansons, that stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's interesting what you say about um the rewards and stuff because I I worked for a brewery before I, I set up Hot Forward, which is mainly focused on um, branding and marketing for breweries and other beer businesses. But I do brewery consultancy as well, and um. You know, I love brewing, and um, you know, I, and I, just, I would still like to brew. I mean, I've I've got a commercial license to do it from home, so I've set my cellar up with a little one barrel kit, That's so brilliant. I can um, I, I can get going again with the um, brewery I was setting up before I started working for a microbrewery. Um, but I, I just find that the lifestyle of you know um, working with breweries and in the industry just more favourable, and yeah, rewarding is the word than um you know being on the front of the production line um you know it's um i think if you find the right place 
yeah you know, it's right tough people. as well you know you have with a, running a brewery is, is not easy it's no. you have to run a very tight ship to make it work yeah um and i think importantly like i i've looked at running a small brewery in the past and uh, i think as well as that you really need to have a decent amount of capital at the start yep. if you if you want to go to a, a decent scale you need to have that buffer um and and uh, you know I, i'm not somebody that's got a large kind of pile of cash lying around to start a brewery so it, it, unless you have that I, i'm just not sure i can i, I could do it anyway stronger yeah. people than me probably could well i think that's what i found when i was trying to set my brewery up i was just like i just even to set something up that like a five barrel or even 10 barrel kit i was just like this is just way beyond my financial reach and it's not like i'm from a, a, a family where we've got deep pockets you know uh, or, or even our friends that have deep pockets so you know I, I think having a little one barrel kit where i can sell stuff and and have a nice little one barrel kit you know i've got like a, a uni tank and canning equipment and stuff and just pump out just to the local market a couple of kegs and some cans and stuff just suits me to the ground i think because i can i can i can still brew and and do lots of experimentation but i'm not like having to rely on it as my main sole source of income and i think that's where for a lot of brewers it can kind of suck the joy and the fun out of it particularly if you own the business where you're just like i'm working stupid hours for no money so um i have this like very distant dream of having like a i don't know a small barn somewhere in, in in rural wiltshire or somerset with kind of like an honesty bar so you just brew like a small amount and people come by on the way after work and just drop in and pick up like i don't know three or four liters of very good quality something and mm. and then go on their merry way and you know you brew like once a fortnight for fun <laughs> you know I, I think that would be great um, yeah. and and you could do like a cider batch as well because you don't pay any duty on up to seven thousand liters i think and, yeah yeah how great would that be? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> maybe one for the future. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on, let's let's talk about yeast. And firstly, I want to tackle the project you've been working on with Verdant. So can you share a little bit about how that came about? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it, it first started actually just as I was joining the company. So it was probably uh, late 2017 and we just uh, launched the, the New England strain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd done quite a bit of work with Verdant on it. Uh, and I think their feedback was, well, we really like the New England strain, but what we really, really like is our own house yeast, and could you please dry that? Um, and when we said, well, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. Um, and we asked for samples, and we took them into our laboratory in, in Montreal. And from that point, it sort of, it starts a long process of us uh, characterizing the yeast, seeing whether it will dry correctly, seeing what it will produce flavor-wise, um, until it gets to a point where we've fully characterized it in the lab and then we have to decide whether we're going to launch it as a, as a commercial product. Yep. Um, and sometimes that decision takes longer than the, uh, the actual initial characterization, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we took that strain in probably three, three and a half years ago, um, and then that characterization was done. But then we didn't actually decide to launch a commercial product until quite late, uh, later on after that. So, yeah, that's quite a long journey. Yeah, it is. You know, I think um, developing products like this, is, it's not a quick process. It's um, probably somewhere between two and four years on average, I would suggest, and, and sometimes longer if you have to do something really specialist. Yeah. So when it comes to drying out strains of yeast, because I've, I've always thought this when I've used um, certain wet yeast varieties, like, oh, I wish, you know, like Lalaman, for example, um, w- would make a, a dried version of, of that particular yeast, you know. And um, because I, I think some brewers feel that there can be quite a narrow range considering all the different wet yeast you can buy. Um, and obviously, you know, when you get one of those, 
you've got to take care of it in a whole different way rather than just opening the bag and pitching it um so like how with this particular strain were you able to dry it just talk us through that drying process and what that actually looks like yeah okay so you're right there are less dried strains available at the moment and that is because some uh, strains dry better than others right so your actual yeast propagation um for dried yeast would actually look quite similar to a wet propagation right um, you've got a big tank, you're feeding in a, a feedstock, which in the case of dry yeast, we use molasses. Yep. Um, and they will sometimes use that for wet yeast as well. Um, and you get to your correct cell density where you want it, and then you will send it through a centrifuge, yep. and that will start to remove some of the water. And then you'll send it through a, a washing tank and then another centrifuge, and that makes it a nice colour. Um, and then you go into the actual drying process itself, um, and you go through a process called uh, rotary vacuum filtration, which is where you start to suck the, the liquid out of it. Um, and at this point, you've got something that almost like resembles a paste, mm. um, and it's extruded uh, through a plate and almost creates spaghetti, right? So you've got spaghetti yep. strings of yeast. Um, and then we take that and we stick it into a dryer, and that blows those strings up and down with warm air, and that slowly starts to dry the moisture off, and, and you eventually get the, the dried yeast that you see in the packet at the end of it. Um, and one of the reasons that there are there is less variety with dried yeast is that... Uh, some yeast survive that process a lot better than others. Right. So right, there's a, a sugar called trehalose, right? I don't know if you've heard of it. Nope. And it's a, a sugar that yeast produce in response to stress. Now, when we are growing the yeast, and before we go into the drying step, we actually trigger a deliberate amount of stress within the yeast so that it produces this trehalose molecule. And this trehalose molecule is then incorporated into the cell membrane of the yeast. And when you go through the drying process, it takes the place of water molecules that would be lost and prevents the cell from breaking. Mm. So it's very important for dried yeasts to be able to produce a lot of this sugar or this chemical of trihalose. And if they don't, they don't tend to dry quite so well. So one of the reasons that there's less is that some of these strains produce trihalose in much greater quantities than others. Right. So we need to find a strain that will produce that before we can go ahead and dry it. So it's, it's almost you're quite fortunate to land with the verdant house yeast with a yeast that survived really well yeah we are actually yeah, yeah. and you know that's that's something that's uh happens twice this year we've been quite fortuitous in that the verdant strain dries really really well and then so does the the kvike voss strain that dries really really well as well yeah um, and you know it's no by no means a given they, they don't all do that yep so what's the fermentation profile of the verdant yeast i mean I, i'm sure brewers will want to use it for big juicy neepers and stuff but um what about other characteristics yeah it's funny <laughs> it's super cliched isn't it i'm gonna say it's fruity cause, like, <laughs> but that's what everybody says about brewers yeast no it, it, it is it's a fruity character but it's a very specific sort of fruity character so i get like a, a peachy plum sort of flavor from it um but as well as that it seems to produce a very silky mouthfeel the mechanism behind which we're not entirely sure and yet but it may have something to do with glycerol um, but every beer that I've had with it has been very imbalanced. So, you know, it doesn't produce too much of, like I say, a higher alcohol and too much of an ester. Everything is quite fine and, 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 and imbalanced. It's really, really nice um, flavour to it. And, it, you know, it isn't just juicy kind of neppers that you can produce with it. So actually my favourite beer today has been a, an oatmeal porter that Unity did in Southampton with it, which I thought was a fantastic beer, mm. and, and it's my beer of the year. Um, but... Yeah, it, it, it's a really versatile strain. And, you know, the genetic background of these strains is such that they, they have been used to produce different types of beer in the past. You know, Nepa hasn't been around forever. Yeah. Um, so so you can use them in a really versatile fashion. Yeah. So how would it fare up in, like, a, an ESB or something like that, do you think? 
I think it quite well. Maybe that as the character it produces is slightly different to an ESB. You know, ESB would be more of like a citrusy orangey, whereas this is a bit more stone fruit. Right. So I'd probably see it more as a IPA slash portery dark beer sort of sort of strain rather than a a, a bitter. But that's not to say you couldn't. You know. Mm, yeah. Um, my my understanding of the this verdant strain is that the flocculation is quite low, right? It's actually a bit of a misnomer. Everybody does assume that to be the case, but it's actually not that oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So it's actually probably it's more flocculent than our least flocculent strains. We put it that way. So it's more akin to like an American ale yeast. Right. Okay. Um, so when you get that haze in the neppers, that that should very much not be composed of yeast, right? That should be protein and and tannin polyphenol complex, and you shouldn't really have any yeast in there. Yeah. Um, so actually, the strain drops reasonably well. Okay. So I'm jumping off the back of that question onto just a question I'm really curious about. So I I love the London ESB strain. Like um, I remember because there's a a wet yeast that I I used to use quite a lot in home brewing. Um, And then I remember when I started working at Sheffield Brewery, I was like, oh, you know, we, we, you know, I was talking about this particular yeast and they were like, well, it might be a bit expensive and all the rest of it and maintaining it in the brew house might be problematic etc etc and i was like oh it'd be amazing if someone released like a dry strain like this yeast and then this came out <laughs> and then um so we we you know we we used it to make this um it was a porter that was it they, they wanted their house porter um brewing and i'd done a little test batch with this wet yeast and it just tasted amazing and it won an award actually so i was like well and i'd only just joined the company so i was like well let's scale this beer up you, you, now this yeast has come out you know so um i pitched it and i didn't realize that it it doesn't um ferment out multitriose and yeah, i mashed yeah. in at like 68 so oh. the beer came down to 1018 and stopped no it was 1019 even and stopped and i was like what on earth are we gonna do and they were like you know we had the bottling company books and everything it's like well we've got to put this beer in package you know, and unfortunately, we, we we turned it around and called it something else, called it like a dark mild, and and it was and it, and it was really nice. But when I, I started using that in other beers, what I found is that um, for cast beer, I just couldn't get it to settle out. Yet when I did it in bottle conditioned beers, it'd just be as clear as a bell. Like, why do you think that was? Yeah, it's a tough one. The the kind of the Windsor and the USB are both kind of they behave a bit like that, and they both don't um, ferment multitriose. Mm. You may or may not know, but one of the triggers for yeast flocculation tends to be sugar depletion. So if you have multitriose there, despite the fact that the yeast isn't going to ferment it, it actually has a an impact on it not dropping out particularly well, which is a it's a bit yep. inconvenient. Uh, it's, it's a bit lazy of the yeast as well. Mm. Um, the difference between cask and bottle, I think, is probably a part of the issue there. So, I mean, you probably lost a lot of the solid before you put it into to bottles compared with when you put it in cask. But also, if you've got a little bit of residual CO2 in your cask, when you then tap it and you get that CO2 kind of surge at coming out of solution, you probably kick up the bottoms quite a lot. Yep. Um, and it just isn't a very flocculent yeast, you know. It just does not like to stick down very much. I think one of the questions you, you sent me kind of beforehand was, uh, is there a way of getting ESB in winter to flock easily? And the answer is no, not really, unfortunately. Um, I, I did put biocentrifuge, but I realised yeah. that's uh, <laughs> pretty, 
pretty uh, out of the reach of some. Um, findings can help, obviously, but again, they're just not the perfect solution because findings work with um, yeast that's already flocculating a bit, right? So if you've got um, flocks of yeast sticking together and they're a bit small, you can probably start to knock them down with findings quite easily. But in the case of Windsor and ESB, you've almost got plantonic cells there that they're just sitting there on their own and they're so small that they're going to take ages to drop out. Um, so, you know, you can maximise your... Uh, calcium levels so you've got the correct level of calcium in there which is a, a driver for youth flocculation and mm -hmm. you can make sure you can get it really really cold but other than that and time yep. there isn't a great deal more you can do mm. um, the, the distance to drop is quite useful as well so you've got um, shorter tanks and obviously it drops a lot quicker yeah now these are really really high vertical tanks <laughs> yeah narrow, narrow yeah. and vertical i've had similar issues with um a lager yeast in the past that did not want to drop um and that was similar you look down the microscope and you're like oh lovely all these little yeast cells <laughs> having a bit of fun and not dropping out <laughs> yeah so um one of the questions we got asked quite a lot by brewers is what's your opinion on rehydrating yeast because um there's yeasts out there that say you know you can you can just pitch it um, from the packet, but still on the packet it says that you should rehydrate it. So like, wh which is it? Like, and what's the reason for either rehydrating or not rehydrating a yeast? It's funny, really, because it it's a bit of a grey area, and it's something that we've done a lot of work on in in the past two years. Um, the rehydration method that you're kind of referring to is um, it's almost a legacy thing. It's been around for a very long time, and it was developed when brewing yeast was in its you know relative infancy. Um, it's still relevant. Um, and what you see is that sometimes there's a very small difference between a fermentation that's been rehydrated and one that hasn't, um, often a small decrease in the total attenuation um, of the strain. But it isn't always the one that's been rehydrated, just to confuse things. Mm. So, you know, what we see is that occasionally there's a small difference, but actually it doesn't make that bigger difference. And probably statistically, there's very little in it. Um, what I tend to say to brewers is that if they're happy with the way they're doing it, just continue doing it that way. Um, but, it, it, you know, it doesn't escape me that actually when you're a larger brewer, it starts becoming practical to uh, rehydrate yeast. So, for instance, when I was at Darkstar, I was using between 5 and 10 kilos at once. Now, the procedure says that you have to dilute that in 10 times its weight in sterile water, right? So once you started to get 10 kilos, it starts to become a bit much. Uh, unless you've got a dedicated tank for the task, it, mm. it, it becomes impractical. Um, so what we would say to people is that you don't need to, but if it works for you and you're happy with the way it works, then continue to do so. Um, there is a slight caveat there in that if you are going to be pitching yeast into really tough conditions, it's better to rehydrate. So if you're, say, pitching it into a very, very strong wort for an imperial stout or like a very sour wort, it is beneficial to rehydrate uh, yeah. beforehand. So just while we're talking about imperial stouts, actually, um, I mean, what, what's the best method of fermenting one of those out? Because... Um, you know obviously there's a lot of sugar in there and they can tend to store a little bit high so like to get that maximum attenuation so you're not getting a really cloyingly sweet beer like what's what's the best method and maybe even the best yeast to use I mean, I would always use like a, a fully attenuating yeast. So unless you're looking for the particular flavors associated with, say, the, the London or the, the Windsor, I would use like a fully attenuating ale strain. So either the BOY, which is an American ale strain, or Nottingham. Um, I think there's, you know, there's a few tricks to imperial stouts. And uh, 
if, if you just do a standard Imperial Stout mash, right, you're going to end up with quite a high final gravity just by virtue of the fact there's going to be quite a lot of complex sugars in there. So, there's, you know, there's various things that you can do about it. So you can either mash low and that will help to a degree. Mm. Um, you can start adding enzyme treatments. So amyloglucosidases, for instance, which is going to produce more and more simple sugar. Uh, and then you can look at the fermentation itself. Um, because you've gone with quite high gravity, you actually need to go with quite a high pitch rate. So a, a classic uh, symptom of like under pitching would be a fermentation that stalls high. Uh, the same with under oxygenation, it'd be a fermentation that stalls high. So you really need to be adding more yeast than you would in general for a fermentation and possibly more even than our recommendations suggest. So most of our yeast say 50 to 100 grams per hectoliter, right? And that, that yeah. rather assumes that you're brewing a, a normal beer, <laughs> you know, like maybe five to eight percent if you're starting to go up towards like 12 14 you need to be doing that again you know maybe going up 200 grams a hectoliter to get that fermentation to work properly yeah as well as that you probably do want to add some nutrient so you need to get some free amino nitrogen in there and you also need to get some zinc in there because zinc is a, a cofactor within the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme so if you're producing an awful lot of alcohol you need to have that zinc supplementation there um so there is quite a lot of to it i think you know as long as you obey those steps you're going to end up with a, a fairly decent fermentation um in the past i have added a shot of oxygen during lag phase just to give it a little bit of a a bit of a boost and then on the back of that towards the end of fermentation i like to start yeasting it off early and just because it's so strong and it's had such high osmotic shock you're going to have quite a lot of um, unhappy yeast in there and in order to avoid off flavors associated with that so you like autolytic characters and your marmite and that sort of thing you really want to be taking that off as soon as it sticks to the bottom of the tank yeah um, i find that marmite is the, the biggest off flavor that i find in imperial states and i just it, it's so obvious it, yeah it, it shouldn't be there but it's very easy to produce you said about oxygenating your beers there now one of the other things apart from um rehydrating yeast you often hear in these debates is to whether it needs oxygen or not so obviously i know with the wet yeast it needs it like should, should brewers be doing that with the dried yeast uh, with dried yeast on gener generation one so if it comes out of the packet dried you don't actually need to so the reason for that is in our in our big propagators in in austria they're grown under semi-aerobic conditions right and those aerobic conditions are, are what's necessary to create the sterols within the cell wall which is what uh, the oxygen is actually for um, so because they've been grown in that sort of environment, they're already enriched in sterols and they don't need the oxygen. Um, you know, if you're going into super high gravity work for an imperial stout, it's going to help. It's going to yeah. do no harm at all. Um, so I would recommend it for that. Where it can be a problem is that it can give you uh, very high levels of yeast growth. So if you were to oxygenate at a high level going into a normal fermentation at a normal pitch rate, you can end up with lots of over foaming and high losses, um, which isn't ideal. Yeah. So just going back then to um, developing yeasts. So how do you select these various yeast strains when you think about creating a new products? And, and how long is that? I know you said about three years earlier on, but um, you know, how long is the typical product development stage and the testing stage before you release it into the industry? And yet, do you ever get right to the end of that process and be like, you know, this just didn't work in? <laughs> yeah. Interesting, actually. I mean, the way we go about kind of new product development is uh, you obviously you look for a gap in the market. That's one way of doing it, right? So um, 
being being dried yeast, there's less strains out there, so it's actually relatively easy to identify a gap in the market. You can say, okay, there isn't a dried one of those. Can we produce one? Where can we get it from? Will it dry well? Do we have one in house already? Can we buy it in from an external lab and license it? You know, that that that's probably the easiest mm. kind of product development that we do. And then we can go down the route of looking for problems with the industry that we need to solve. So I guess kind of you know old school innovation. Um, so, for instance, our sour pitch products. Yep. Um, I mean, before sour pitch came along, there was kettle souring, but it, it wasn't as we know it today. You know, you, people were using malts or people using yogurt, um, and it works, obviously, but the results can be inconsistent. You don't really know what you're getting. So that that was kind of a, a new product that came about just through uh, product innovation. So we looked and we saw there's a problem, and can we fix it? And we're like, okay, well, we have these strains within the wine division already. Um, can we look to utilize these in brewing? Can we do some tests with them? Can we send out samples to breweries and get them to try it and see if it works? And that was the, the basis of the start of that project. Um, we've always got lots of projects going on at once. And invariably, as you said, do we get to the end of the process and we decide not to launch something? Uh, yes, we would. So there's always things that get, not that it necessarily get to the final stage, but during the stage of the process, they might get knocked off. Um, so, for instance, at the moment, I'm running a, a project looking at low alcohol stuff, and there's several strains within that uh, kind of project that I'm looking at, and they definitely won't all make it through to the final product. Yeah. And do you think as biotechnology improves, do you think we'll see more specific yeast strains um, coming out? Do you think the future's kind of hopeful, or is it literally just like just going to continue being hit and miss? No, it's, it's interesting because I mean, there's a lot of different ways of developing yeast, right? So you can go like bioprospecting, you can see what's out there in the wild, you can buy stuff from universities. Um, but then there's, you know, you can do techniques to actually take a yeast strain that already exists and then make it so it kind of evolves in a fashion that you like. So it's not necessarily in a genetically modified way. So there's techniques called directed evolution. Um, and um, an example of this is a product we have in the wine division. So with climate change, a lot of uh, wineries are struggling with very high sugar contents within mm -hmm. their grapes and very low levels of acid. So you end up with a wine that's too strong and not very crisp, right? Just, I mean, I'm not a wine guy, but that's how I'm going to describe yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and the wine division saw that as a problem, much in the same way as we saw souring beers as a problem. And they said, okay, can we produce a yeast strain that can help with this? Uh, and there wasn't anything on the market. So they took one of our existing yeast strains and they used directed evolution um, in the labs to produce a strain that produces naturally less alcohol and more acid um, and along with that some glycerol as well and that was an entirely natural technique just using stressful conditions to get that yeast to mutate slowly over time into something that you want um, which I think is really really interesting it's not something that we've done yet within the brewing division but I really hope that we do and I think that's the way things are going in general yeah so there's this old saying that I'm sure everyone listening to this has heard, right? Um, brewers make work, but yeast make beer. Now, we, we all know as brewers that we have a lot of control over our yeast. So what are some of the top tips you can give any brewer out there listening to this when it comes to working with dried yeast, other than some of the obvious stuff that people are already doing? Like what are some of the ways we can get really good flavor profiles out of yeast rather than just setting the temperature to one thing and just letting it ride yeah you know i think there's a lot of people that kind of hit and hope like that so uh, the, the uh, there's some tips that i wrote down and they're kind of like i, I would describe them as just as tips for yeast not, not even dried or wet they're just okay. tips for yeast yep. um the first of which uh would be don't ignore pitching rates right so um if, if you pitch 
too low. And I think there's, you know, there's been um, a certain belief amongst brewers that uh, dry yeast pitching rates are always set too high, and that's not actually the case. They are set so that you don't end up with problems further down the line. Um, you know, nine times out of ten, it'll probably work if you go way under the, the recommended pitching rate. But that one time that it catches you out, it's going to catch you out, and then you're going to say, "Oh, it's the yeast." And then if you actually read the uh, the guidelines, you'll say, "Okay, maybe, maybe I pitch below." So. You know, there's that avoiding fermentation problems, but then also pitching rate can influence the flavour produced by a, a, a yeast in a, in, in, a, in a few ways. So, uh, if you pitch lower, you can get more ester character. If you pitch higher, you can make fermentations that are slightly cleaner. Um, so, I think you know, if you're going to produce a beer, you have to write down a whole bunch of guidelines at the start, and you have to say, what do I want to achieve with this, and how can the yeast strain help me? And pitching rate is probably the first thing that I'd look at. Mm. Do you think a lot of brewers tend to look more at their grist bill and their hop schedule as the primary flavour components when they're putting a recipe together rather than thinking, you know, obviously there's an awareness of like, I'm going to use this yeast or that yeast, but rather than thinking through their fermentation profile and their temperature rests and all that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they certainly... They're the most obvious impacts straight up. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. you're throwing in a coloured malt, you see the impact of that very clearly. You're throwing in a dry hop, you see the impact of that very clearly. I think yeast can be a bit more nuanced than that. You can't necessarily say, I did X, therefore this is going to happen. Um, but that's not to say that you shouldn't try. Um, I think, you know, if you can, you do use the right pitch rates, but then alter them for the gravity. So I don't think, you know, there's not a great delivery out there that say, okay, I've brewed a beer that's 1080 and I've brewed a beer that's 1040. I should be pitching way more to take into account that. And if I don't, there's going to be a flavor impact. Um, so that's something that they really ought to take into account. Yeah. Um, the other one that I get an awful lot as, as far as tips go is that I get an awful lot of brewers who will email me and say, I want to know the specific attenuation of this particular yeast strain, almost down to the percentage. No, they want to know if it's 73% or 74%, and uh, it doesn't work like that. It's uh, it's entirely down to the mashing conditions. You know, you might have a yeast that naturally attenuates less, like a Windsor or an ESB, um, or a yeast that naturally attenuates more, like a, an English ale or a US ale strain. But it, it's mostly dependent on mash temperature. Um, so that's another one to pay attention to. Like just, you know, your attenuation levels should be set, but they should be set and they should become consistent through your processes, not through the yeast strain that you use or how you treat it. Yeah. Just as you're saying all that, it, it makes me think of a beer I brewed last Christmas um, for an event I was putting on. And it was just a small batch. It was like 80 litres to get a couple of kegs and bottles out and stuff. And I, I, it was complete rookie error. But I um I set my temperature like a degree too low, so it was like seventeen point five C, and the the and it, the fermentation took off much slower. Mm. But it just the beer had this acetaldehyde quality to it. That's you know that kind of green apple quality yeah. to it. And I'd, I'd ramp the temperature up afterwards, but it was like the the damage was done because I'd not attended to it within the first I mean, if, it, if it's hours. there in like a very high level it's going to take quite a long time for the yeast to bring it down yeah. and it you know it, it probably would bring it down over time but it it's going to take a while to do it um and you know there's there's nothing wrong with shooting lower on a fermentation temperature you can go for 17 and a half degrees you just have to make sure that you pitch more yeast to take that into consideration yeah i i didn't <laughs> yeah. I didn't, uh, but, you know i mean you wouldn't believe the mistakes i've made in the past so. yeah but, uh, we all do it you know it's it's and you, you kick yourself afterwards you're like why didn't i think of that you know um but, i've just had an entire batch of um champagne style cider explode in the secondary fermentation the oh bottles no. 
Yeah, that you know that week where it was like 35 degrees C? Yeah, yeah it's no good for bottle conditioning mm. champagne. <laughs> See, th- th- this would be interesting to talk about, actually. So you, you hear out now that a lot of brewers are going into cans, um, and obviously, you know, um, fruited beers like an IPA with like mango and passion fruit or whatever uh, are you know all, all the rage and then you know you hear these reports of breweries having to recall them because the cans are bulging or worse you know cracking open I mean when when you're working with fruit like that how do you account for the various fructose and sucrose that's in there I mean they tend to come as syrups and they tend to come uh, with a bricks rating on them Right. So if you look at, you know, you've got a refractometer, you can yep. measure the bricks, you can kind of relate that to, to gravity. But to be honest, on most fruits, you can almost assume that that is entirely fermentable sugar, right? So if you're adding that in at the end of fermentation and then you're packaging and you're not taking the yeast out or making some sort of adjustment to stop the yeast, it probably will ferment. And, uh, you know, I, I have heard like quite a lot in the past that, you know, cold chain should prevent this and you know if your cold chain all steps the process you should be able to do that i don't really accept that you know i think you can't guarantee that that can is always going to be in a cold chain at least of all when it gets to the customer because they might stick it in a cupboard um so you do have to be very careful with that sort of thing i I would never put fermentable sugar into a container with yeast i just wouldn't do it It, it's not worth it yeah so just before we start talking about sour beers and all that stuff um Sometimes um, you come across brewers who just absolutely swear by wet yeast, dry yeast is crap, why would you use it? Like, how would you counteract that argument? Yeah, it, it, unfortunately, you know, like like the pitching rate myth, it's something that's uh, very much sustained within the industry. And it, it's probably got legs in kind of, uh, in fact, in that when dry yeast was first produced, you know, 20 years ago, it, it was Quite, quite inferior to the to the wet product. I'd say now uh, these days, in many respects, it's much higher quality than the wet yeast, and and part of that is due to the shelf life, right? So we we produce this dried strain, and then once it's dried, it's stable for three years, which means we have the luxury of time to run all our QC on it whilst it's in the warehouse. You mm-hmm. know, our QC process can take two to three months. We'll run tests for diastaticus, we'll run tests for wild yeast, we'll run tests for aerobes, anaerobes, everything. And it doesn't leave our warehouse until we're happy with it. In the case of a, a wet strain, as soon as you've produced that strain and it's got to go, it's got to go out to the brewer and the whole time that it's not with the brewer is starting to degrade and break down, which means you have much less time to do any QC on it before it goes out to the customer. So I think in that respect, you know, I think dried actually has a real advantage over wet. It's, I mean, you know, (laughs) I work for Lalaman, so I'm I'm always going to be like (laughs) pro-dried yeast. You know, as well as that, it's very, very convenient. And the level of quality of dried yeast that we produce means that you can actually serially pitch it and you can do up to six generations quite easily. Um, And at that point, I think the advantages really do start to outweigh that of wet yeast because once it's past its first generation, it effectively is wet yeast, right? You're just re-pitching a wet strain, so it becomes wet yeast. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I don't agree with the argument that, dried yeast is is mm-hmm. inferior in any way in fact i think it's superior in many ways yeah uh, and, and you know that's, that's that's something that we hope to change within the industry and i think we're succeeding um i think people are seeing the light and moving over yeah uh, two things just dropped me just there what you said about repitching dry yeast because i know with certain dry yeast they say you shouldn't repitch them so i, I didn't know that you could repitch um the, the lalaman ones yeah, that's. Uh, I think we might talk about it later, but it's um, it's something we've put a real attention into over the last few years. Is um, 
making our yeast so high quality that you can easily repitch it. Um, we've invested quite a lot in our processes and actually we have a dedicated yeast plant in Austria in Vienna, um, which is entirely brewing yeast, which means we can up the quality. Uh, and yeah, it's just perfectly good for repitching. Yeah, and the other question I had just off the back of that was you were talking about storing the yeast for up to three years. Um, I mean, we all know we should, you should keep yeast cold, um, but like, let's say you've got the packet, you know, it's somewhere room temperature, you, you've forgotten about it, and then a year later you're like, oh, I found that yeast again, you know, and you're like, well, it's, this cost me X amount. What would you do? Do you use it or not? <laughs> it, it's a funny one you know what i would do i'd buy another one and i would use it and if it doesn't work then i'd have the uh, the other one in reserve right <laughs> but, yeah, you know in all likelihood it, it's probably going to work you know it will have reduced in viability to a certain degree just because you've not kept it in ideal storage conditions but it probably won't have reduced the degree that it won't work at all um we have you know we've had people come up to us at trade shows and be like oh yeah i used your brick in nottingham it was five years old and we're like oh god don't do that <laughs> but but they've done it you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, talk, talk to us about sours. So, we'll we'll start with the uh, Philly sour, and I must confess, I've, I've never brewed a sour beer myself. It's on it's on the bucket list. Okay. Um, can you share with us about the souring process and how Philly sour helps with that? Yeah, so Philly sour is like a, a new product. Um, within our range, we have three products for sour beer, and well, four if you include the sour beer. Um, the Philly sour, the Helveticus pitch, and the sour pitch. Um, the Helveticus pitch and the sour pitch are both bacteria, right? So they're lactobacillus strains, and they were designed predominantly for um, kettle souring. Mm. So you, you run your wort into your kettle, you boil it a bit, you cool it down, you add your lactobacillus, and you allow it to sour for 24 to 48 hours. And that's a process that's been, um, I think, widely accepted within the, the industry for over the last kind of five years, I suppose. Um, and it's been a really successful product for us. Um, what you do find is that some breweries don't have that luxury of time, do you know what I mean? So yeah. if you've got your work within the kettle and you've added um, sour pitch to it and it's starting to, to sour, you then have 24 to 48 hours where you can't use the kettle unless you have a dedicated vessel for souring, which, which some people do. Um, and so Philly Sour is a product that kind of... Um, Bridges that gap, so it allows you to sour within the primary fermentation. Um, and it's quite an innovative strain in that it's not a Saccharomyces. So this is a Lahansia species, um, right. which has been developed specifically in partnership with um, the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. Uh, and they isolated it from tree bark um, in, in the local park. It, actually in a graveyard, the, the code for the yeast when they first developed, uh, developed it was um, GY74, I think, or something, which stood for graveyard. Um, hmm. So, so oh, it's wow. a yeast from a graveyard, um, and what it does is it, it ferments uh, to the same degree as a normal brewing strain would. So, it, it ferments the the full complement of wort sugars. So, it'll do uh, maltitriose, maltose, glucose. Um, but what it does is it produces lactic acid from glucose. So, at the start of your fermentation, when you have uh, probably ten to fifteen percent of glucose within within the wort, it will start to produce lactic acid from that first, and then after that, it will start to ferment the wort sugars, and you'll get a full fermentation. It's a uh, it's a really interesting strain. You know, it's not it's not a genetic brewing yeast, so it does behave quite differently. It's got a slightly warmer fermentation uh, temperature, so between twenty and twenty five, rather than I guess for a standard ale strain, you're probably talking between seventeen and twenty three. Um, so it does like to be a little bit warmer. 
um, but it'll do the full fermentation uh, and it'll produce sour beer without having to kettle sour. Yeah. Um, it's probably a slightly different character, say, to the, the sour pitch or the Helveticus pitch, but um, a really interesting product. And it's only been on the market now for, I think, about a month and a half. So yeah. it's really, really new. So if brewers are interested in um, sour and beers, what, what precautions should they take in their brew house to ensure they don't end up with a wild bacterial infection on all their beers? And particularly, like, should they be worried about putting anything with the word wild in it through a regular packaging line? Or with, with this yeast in particular, can they just treat it as normal or do they need extra vigilance? Yeah, so, I mean, it depends how they're doing it, right? So the, the sour pitch and the Helveticus pitch are designed for kettle sour, right? And in that case, it's extremely safe. Um, one, you're souring it, but then two, you're boiling it afterwards, so you're killing off anything that might be there, and then you're going forward to a regular fermentation. In addition, the bacteria strains are very sensitive to hop acids, so they're both sensitive to 4-IBU. Um, so pretty much a touch of hops, it will kill them. Um, some people like to use the bacteria strains in co-fermentation without hops, and at that stage, it's still relatively safe, but it's a bit more of a risk. You know, you're introducing live souring bacteria into your brewery. Um, yes, it's sensitive to hops, but it's still uh, going to produce lactic acid if it can. Um, and then the Philly sour, that's different again, right? So you're you're going into primary fermentation with a, a yeast that produces acid. Now, a couple of things that make it relatively safe is the fact that it's quite slow strain, right? And it only produces the lactic acid from glucose. Um, so at the start of your fermentation, the first thing to be used up is glucose, right? So even if you had a trace amount of that lactic acid, sorry, that, that lactic yeast within the fermenter, if you're brewing a regular fermentation, that brewing strain is going to be so much more virulent than the Philly sour that it's going to use up the glucose and then there's going to be no glucose available for the Philly sour to produce lactic acid. So it is easily outcompeted by brewing strains. Um, it's not to say that you shouldn't be a bit careful with it, you know, like if you've got glucose hanging around you know it could potentially produce lactic acid from it and therefore i'd want to be a little bit careful with it on packaging lines and stuff um you shouldn't have glucose in your packages but if you do it could potentially produce lactic acid yeah um, so be a bit careful with it it's not like you know it's not like having a a pediococcus in your brewery it's probably more akin to having like a actually it's probably slightly better than having a saison strain um but it's, it's not 100 percent risk free Right. Um, I guess the other end of the spectrum there is if you're doing full wild fermentations and you're doing stuff with Brett and you're doing stuff with Pediococcus, then you really need to isolate everything. So you, I certainly wouldn't want to be putting proper mixed fermentation beers through a packaging line. And ideally, I'd want to put them into separate tanks with different hoses and pumps. Yeah. So if a brewery does get an infection um, for whatever reason, like, you know, uh, particularly yeast related, like what, what, what then? What do they do? Uh clean clean and more cleaning really i mean yeast is you know it's, it's not that resilient a thing so caustic and, and pa will, will get to the bottom of it pretty quickly but it it's kind of like about having things that are hygienically designed and easy to clean right so if you've got a fermenter take all that seals off it um ideally your pumps shouldn't be bsp fittings but i appreciate a lot of the time they are um, <laughs> So just getting in and giving it a good old clean. And, you know, if CIP won't touch it, then manual cleaning after that. Um, one thing, you know, I've, I've got friends that work in large breweries because I've um, I've been to Herit Watt and the, the people get distributed all over the place very widely. And uh, one thing that the large breweries did when they had problems with uh, kind of 
infections and that sort of thing is that they would put 80 degree water through any pipe that had beer through it so right. you put beer through it and then you'd immediately chase it with 80 degree water and it gives it you know a chance to clean everything out and, and pretty much kill anything that's there yeah. um so yeah be careful you know pay attention to your hygiene regime uh, regimes do cip things but do manually clean things if you need to as well yep so talk about salvesi then um and how that compares to a non-gmo yeast in its performance yeah, it's just really, really virulent. Like it rips through fermentation and produces shed loads of lactic acid. I mean, I think it, you, you could probably like argue it was a bit of a, a blunt tool because right. uh, it produces so much acidity. It's funny because it's um, it's obviously it's a GMO yeast and it's not available in the UK. Yep. So I've only tried it on trips to the States and it's so puckering like it produces so much acidity um to the point that a lot of people will brew like sour beers with it and then use them for blending so that they can right. actually blend it to a level where it's not too much um <laughs> on its own it can be a bit a bit powerful yeah like sucking a load of sherbet lemons exactly like that yeah <laughs> so um i mean how does it compare to a yeast that's been cropped and repitched in sours to build up low ph tolerance it's interesting, actually, because, I mean, if, if you did that with a yeast, you're going to get a certain degree of, of pH tolerance. The, the thing with the sour vizier, this is one strain that isn't actually recommended for repitching, is because it produces so much lactic acid that it almost damages itself. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's almost slightly, it starts to inhibit the, the yeast. Um, pH is quite important for yeast, uh, especially when metabolizing multitriers. Mm. Um, so what you find is that if you start fermenting things at a very uh, low pH all of the time, then quite often you'll get fermentations that don't fully complete. So you'll get like a stalled fermentation where it stalls a couple points high of where it normally would. It's almost like you were using an ESB or a Windsor. And the reason is because that low pH is inhibiting uh, multitriers metabolization. Yeah. Um, so that, that's something to look at, I suppose. Uh, some yeasts are, are better for it than others. I'd need to look up the list of which strains are better. But from memory, I think Nottingham isn't that good at it. doesn't mm. like it that much. So m moving on, with experimentation in brewing grown daily, I'm sure there are lots of people out there who are in interested in blending different yeast strains together. And I know I've done it in the past. Um, but like, how, how should brewers approach this? And what should they be aware of if they take literally take two different yeast packets and tip them both in? Yeah, I mean, it's actually something that's pretty common now. And I, I've done it as well. And what you're looking for really is to take a characteristic of one strain and blend it with a characteristic of another strain so you get the best of both worlds so i mean one example i like to use is is, is the windsor for instance isn't very flocculent right and it doesn't ferment multitrius now what if you want the flavor from windsor but you want the flocculence of something else you can use windsor and i don't know say nottingham or boy and that will increase your attenuation and your flocculation of the windsor but you'll still have the windsor characteristic that's there. exactly what i want that's that's the combination i'm after <laughs> <laughs> so that, I mean, that, that's the way of doing it and you can do quite fun things like that you know you could probably you know you can use the, like a, an abbey ale yeast and like mm. a, an american ale yeast and you can get something that's a bit saison like you know there's lots of different ways of doing it but how do you know the ratio so coming back to the windsor thing like how, how do you know what kind of ratio to use to get that perfect balance so one yeast doesn't dominate the other i think really by experimentation right. uh, to get the flavor so you'd have to say okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna use i don't know windsor and bry but i don't want it just to taste neutral i don't want the, the windsor to be out competed so you'd probably say okay i'll start with a bit more windsor than i would the bry um, but really it's going to be trial and error to get that right yep cool so moving on to another new strain that people are turning their hand to kvike um can you can you talk us a bit about how this strain was developed and how it's been utilized 
Yeah, again, so that was probably, they've been launched quite close to each other, so that was probably about mm, three years ago. Um, and we collected, I think it was about seven or eight different bike isolates from Norway um, through Lars Garshall. And we took those to Montreal and uh, we analyzed them and split them into their constituent parts. So they weren't, these weren't all pure cultures, right? So some of them were a mixture of several yeast strains and, and also bacteria. Um, and at the end of that process, we ended up with 19 distinct strains. Um, and we banked them in our yeast bank probably about two and a half years ago. Uh, and then we sat on them and did nothing because uh, mm. we weren't really sure that this was going to be a thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think probably early last year we were like, oh, this bike thing seems to be generating a bit more interest. And we said, well, okay, well, we've got 19. Um, what, what should we do with them? So uh, we started doing some in-house trials with the, the different bike strains um, and important like drying trials as well. So trying to work out which one dried the best. Mm. Um, and the one that dried the best was the Voss. Uh, and it also ferments really, really well. So that was the one that we decided to develop and uh, bring to market. Uh, and that officially hit the UK market and global market as well in November, I think. Yep. Um, really interesting strains. You know, they're, they're doing something that just traditional brewing strains just don't do. You know, they ferment at very high temperatures, but they don't produce an awful lot of off flavors. They're quite clean fermenting in that yeah. respect, um, which actually has, you know, the potential to be really, really useful to a lot of people, as well as being interesting from a, a new brewing style perspective. Yeah. Have you got any tips for using it? Because I've heard from one brewer um, that the late edition hops aren't really necessary because of the high fermentation temperatures. It tends to just kind of like get rid of that, all those hop compounds and stuff. And oh, you mean what you blow them out of the roof? Is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, if you've got very vigorous fermentation and you are uh, dry hopping during fermentation, then you are likely to lose a lot of volatiles. So, you know, in, in that regard, it's probably better if you're going to dry hop doing it after fermentation and not losing all those flavors. Um, it, I mean, it's actually, you know, dry hopping is so ubiquitous now that actually people forget you don't have to do it. <laughs> so you can actually get some nice flavors, um, without dry hopping at all. I remember um, when I was at Brewdog back in the day, some of the best punk IPA I ever tasted was pre-dry hop. Yep. And you get you can get some really nice flavors just from yeast. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think if, if I were to dry hop with a kvike and it was really going for it, so I was using like 37 degrees or something, I'd want to do it after that really active fermentation had died down. Otherwise, you're just going to lose a lot of money out of the chimney. Yeah. And what differences will different fermentation temperatures make on it? So like with all strains, higher temperatures are going to produce more flavor, right? Because you get more yeast growth. Um, in the case of the Voss, it, it's still quite neutral at high temperatures. Um, the Voss, the, the flavor tends to be impacted more by the pitching rate, mm. right? So um, there's a lot of evidence that would suggest that pitching lower and actually lower than recommended rates, just <laughs> don't tell anybody I said that, um, produces uh, quite nice orangey and citrusy characteristics. And if you pitch at the higher rates, you actually get quite a neutral flavor, even at high temperatures. Mm. Um, so the, the temperature will affect it. But as I say, with the, the Fike strain, it just seems to have a, a very neutral character, even at high temperatures, if you pitch at, at high rates. So it affects it less than maybe a, a normal ale or large yeast would. Yeah. And I've got one last technical question, um, but this is completely for my own benefit. Um, so at, at Christmas last year, I brewed a spice barley wine. So it's something I tend to do every Christmas, just for my own benefit, really. Um, and the recipe, I think I got the recipe from like, it was a, a winner of um, some, like the American Homebrewers Association from like 2014 or something. You know, so it's got all these different spices in, but you've got to add like loads of like golden syrup, molasses, um, <laughs> and all, all these simple sugars. So uh, I use Nottingham with it, 
can't remember the mash temperature um it was average probably about 66 or something if i remember rightly and um the fermentation absolutely shot off i mean it's you know the i got the pitch rate right and everything it was as, as by the book as far as that was concerned absolutely shot off you know dropped like 20 points in a day or something ridiculous <laughs> and i was like oh it won't be too long before i'm having this beer and then it just like stopped well it didn't stop it it just went from going like if you imagine the curve going down yeah. just it over the next seven days just literally slugged its way down to terminal gravity so it did ferment out um the flocculation was terrible you know it took a long time for that beer to then settle out um but it just, it just slugged along and i couldn't quite figure out why so i thought i'd ask you do you know what was the starting gravity Oh gosh, it was like ten seventy eight, maybe. It was quite high. And and where did it eventually finish? Gosh, I can't remember. Mid mid teens, top teens. Yeah, it was mid mid teens. Ten fourteen, ten. Okay. Ten fourteen, I think. Uh, to be honest, in that case, I've, I would probably suggest a, a little bit more yeast. But right. the fact that it shot off right at the start probably means it kind of exhausted itself. Right. So you'd, you'd probably find that it went mental and, and, and took all the, the maltos out. But you then got to a point where you had a big old slug of maltotriose, and that requires the yeast and expression, right. which are related to maltose metabolization, right? Yep. So at, at that point, it slows down a bit, and it says, oh, there's still sugar here, but it's something different. We need to work out how we're going to break that down and eat it. So it's right. probably got to that point where it's like, oh, okay. And then it starts starting to chew through the maltotriose and that can take longer um so in order to prevent that you probably want to use uh either like an enzyme or a slightly lower mash temperature okay. and you have more more maltose there and less maltotriose and you yeah. probably end up with like a similar final attenuation but it would just be easier for the, the yeast to, to mm. chew through it and do you think the simple sugars from the uh, like the golden syrup and stuff had an effect on that in terms of how quick it took off it could have been, yeah, because they would have been mostly glucose and yeah. the yeast would have been like, mm, yum. Because <laughs> I've that. heard with double IPAs that um, you should be adding glucose to fermentation. Um, I can't remember at what point. Um, basically to help boost that ABV but not have the beer be too malt heavy. Um, I don't know if that's right or not. Again, I've I've brewed one or two but they've never been amazingly successful. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have much effect on the malt character. I mean, glucose is right. Um, it's an old West Coast trick. I actually went to, when I visited um, Firestone Walker in 2014 right. yeah, in, yeah. In, in California. Fantastic trip. Um, and they were using glucose in their double IPAs, but they do it in order to... Um, reduce the the final gravity right so you have uh, a, a greater degree of attenuation so less kind of more character they're less thick there's yeah. less body to them um, and that's why you would do it the, the only advantage i can see of adding it during fermentation is that it gives the chance the yeast chance to like kick in and already be working by the time it has to chew through it and it gives you less osmotic shock at the start so if you have a very strong work at the start the yeast won't like it quite as much and it might kick out more off flavors um but i think probably the downsides are are greater you know i'd probably want to add it in the kettle still just for like a sterility point of view mm. so if you're adding any sugars during um fermentation or oh, this goes back to the fruit question as well like um how should you be measuring your gravity so let's say you start off at like i don't know for argument's sake 1050 yeah right and then it gets down to like 10 15 and you think I want the fruit to go in near the end. 
So then you add however much of raspberry puree and mm. it boosts the gravity back up to um, 1020. Like how, how do you work out the ABV based upon the addition you've added? You can probably break it down into, you know, the, the chemistry behind it and work out how much moles of sugar you've got and how much alcohol you're going to produce at the end of it. But I'd probably suggest what the easiest thing to do is, is because you're um, fermenting a, a fruit syrup, you could work out the number of gravity points you've um, added, and then you could use like a, a wine calculator to work out how much alcohol you're going to get from that. Because obviously, if you added that many points of gravity in a brewing fermentation, it's only going to be like 60%, 70% fermentable, whereas in the case of a wine or a, a sugar fermentation, it's going to be almost 100% fermentable. So you could look at a, like a wine or a, a, a cider calculator and work out how much alcohol you're going to get from that addition. Yep. Um, as far as actually looking at the gravity goes, you know, if you've got a a brewing fermentation that stopped at say 10 and you've added three points of sugar and it's gone up three points that sugar is going to be probably entirely fermentable so it should come back down again to, to near 10 yeah maybe slightly slightly lower great stuff so what's next for Lanaman yeast like what what can we look forward to and are we going to see these um genetically modified yeasts hitting the uk market soon in terms of genetically modified yeast hitting the UK market soon, uh, probably not. Um, you know, it's actually possible to license a GMO yeast for use in food in the UK. It's mm -hmm. just that nobody's done it since the mid-90s because the consumer acceptance isn't really there. Um, you know, I think probably look 30 years ahead of the future, maybe 20. And, uh, you know, there's a global growing population and food security is, is, is very important. So you probably find that resistance to GMO drops off on those grounds, whether that includes craft beer. I don't know, that's maybe people's major concern. Um, we, we do actually have quite a few um, GMO brewing yeast that we've played with in lab, like ones that produce isoamyl well, acetate, so you get like kind of that banana flavor from it, and ones that produce raspberry flavor and that sort of thing. Um, but they're not likely to come into the UK market or even the European market anytime soon. Um, I think Sauvizier is probably going to remain the only GMO one that we've got in the States for the time being although it is selling reasonably well um but yeah nothing in europe or or the uk for the time being Shame. Uh, we we do have like a rolling pipeline of um Lalaman yeast and other products to to come out so um watch this space there's quite a few yeasts but they're, they're kind of early stage so i don't want to reveal anything too oh, soon shame, uh, shame. sorry okay <laughs> we, so we, we, we might have an enzyme product in the in the autumn so that's something to look out for so um so we can end this podcast on a, on a high note then um rather than a cliffhanger um wh where do you see brewing science heading over the next decade what apart from the gmo thing when we're all starving and in need of beer and just have to <laughs> grow, grow stuff from scratch um uh, like, <laughs> like what would you like to see yeah it's interesting you know i don't think that that will to change yeast and make them uh kind of I guess kind of you know change them and, and make them do our bidding it, it, it's not going to go away but I think maybe the techniques that we use are probably going to be different mm. so you know like uh, we, we can do pure genetic modification but directed evolution is something that's uh, you know that that's that's perfectly fine nobody cares about that and it's quite easy to do from a laboratory perspective I was um I was at Brabevo last year yep and we had quite a few meetings with um, larger brewing companies, and they're very interested in this because, you know, if they can produce a, a brewing yeast, for instance, that doesn't produce diacetyl, that gives them a major kind of commercial advantage versus their competitors. So I think that's probably going to be, um, as far as like large commercial breweries go, that's probably going to be something that's um, looked at quite a lot. Um, as far as um, craft going, I, I think probably uh, low alcohol yeast, that's going to be big. 
Um, I don't think that's going to be too long before that's really big. Um, but then also probably the, the production of secondary metabolites, so things that the yeast can produce as well as alcohol, as well as lactic acid, um, which are beneficial. So you might find yeast that are particularly good at producing a different type of organic acid, or they might pump out more esters, um, or they might pump out glycerol. So I think there's, uh, there's definite scope for yeast that do that. Great stuff. Well, just just before we end, um, we've got a couple of listener questions. Um, it's just just to just a taxi. Um, Mike James asks, what methods do you use for screening regular Saccharomyces batches for the dietetics variety? Assuming a convincing response is forthcoming, are these tests one hundred percent reliable, and are they made on every batch? And of course, he's asking for a friend. <laughs> of course, of course, uh, of course it's. Uh, so when we take new strains into our castle, right? So when we're doing like our new product development or whatever, yeah. we strain, uh, screen those strains initially for uh, for diastasis. So we test for the star one, two, and three genes. So at that point, we know whether that yeast is SCA positive or not. Um, and then after every batch, like I said, we have the luxury of time. We do a whole series of tests for diastasis before we ever release a batch. So there's a whole series of different ones, um, but we start out with PCR. So we look at polymerase chain reaction, looking for the star genes. Um, and then we'll also look at POF, which is phenolic off flavor. So that's a flavor you quite often get associated with Belgian assays on yeasts, right? Mm. Um, but it's often quite closely associated with the gene that produces uh, diastasis yeast as well. So we'll, we'll look at that. And if that's there, that's a bit of a warning sign. Um, then we'll then move on to do something called a, what's it called? I can't remember. It's like an ANCOM test or something. I think it's ANCOM. Um, and basically what you're doing is you're taking yeast and you're taking uh, a, a, basically a, a solution of dextrin right so it's completely unfermentable material and you're adding a yeast to it and what you should see of course is nothing right so if you've got a diastasis yeast there it's going to start breaking down those dextrins and it's going to start producing gas and these flasks have very very sensitive pressure sensor on them so they can start to detect the buildup of that gas mm. and if you've got a diastasis yeast there then it will start to you know produce pressure uh, and that test can i think it can test up to one cell in a hundred million so yep. it's pretty sensitive um, and we do this on every batch every batch gets tested for yep. and then final question um some of our listeners have asked about price and why lalamang yeasts are more expensive than other brands of yeast i know the um, the verdant one is is pretty pricey now i'm i'm pretty sure if listeners listen to this podcast with, with all the processes involved they can probably see why but um, pun intended, I had to throw this pun in. Um, is there a reason why your yeast are pitched so high? <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> I like it. It is this good pun. I hope you get the sound effects for the drum afterwards. Oh, uh, I'm sure when you will. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's a few reasons, and I think put simply, like our overheads are quite high. So we made the decision two years ago to invest in a specific plant in Vienna. So this is a plant that Lalamand uh, already owned but it was producing lots and lots of different strains. Um, and we basically took over that plant and made it brewing only. And that means that we can produce very high quality yeast without worry of contamination from, from other products, from the wine division or the, the baking division. It's, it's a really nice site, actually. It's on the site of the Otterkringer Brewery in Vienna. So it's oh, a lovely nice. place to go and visit. Really, really good. Um, and obviously that costs quite a lot of money to run. So the overheads in running our own yeast production plant, rather than sharing with any of the other business units within Lallemans, are quite expensive. Mm. So that's one reason. Um, we also have quite a large global technical support team. 
Um, so you've got me and, and my colleague Robert in the UK, but then we've also got somebody in France, somebody in Spain, somebody in Italy, somebody in the Czech Republic, uh, two in Canada, probably four or five in the States, somebody in Brazil, somebody in Argentina, uh, China, Chile, Africa, Australia. So there's a big team. Um, and we don't limit our technical support only to commercial brewers. So we provide commercial, uh, sorry, technical support to commercial brewers and home brewers as well. So you have to pay for, for me. <laughs> so that all adds into the price. Um, and then finally, we, um, we're doing an awful lot of R&D. Um, so, you know, Servizier, um, the Fully Sour, the Verdant, the, the Voss, they don't come from nowhere. There's a lot of uh, R&D that goes into that uh, and it costs money. Um, and so that, that's three very good reasons. Well, I, I guess the advice is, you know, if, if you're using the Verdant strain, just add the cost of sales onto your bottom line and don't sell the, if you're putting it in cask, don't sell it for, you know, 50 quid plus VAT. And, uh, and you know, don't lose facts of the site, uh, site of the fact that it can be repitched. So if you can go multiple generations, that, that price starts to, you know, shrink. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, how can people find out more about Lalaman yeast and, and sort of uh, re- read about what various beer styles they can produce? Uh, so keep an eye on our social media pages. So we've become very active uh, on Facebook and Instagram, etc. over the last few months, as I'm sure many other people have as well. Um, keep an eye out on our website. And there's always stuff going up on there. And we do have a newsletter that you can sign up to um, in normal times and actually in COVID times as well. We're doing quite a lot of um, work within the you know the brewing community. So I'll be speaking at events online and in person, uh, as will all of my colleagues. And I guess one of the benefits of everything being digital and online these days is that you can follow stuff that's been put out by the Australian rep and also by the Americans and the South Americans as well. So we're doing lots of stuff and just, yeah, keep an eye on our, our channels and our website and, and read the newsletter. Fantastic. Thank you. Nice one. Thank you. Today's episode of the Hop4 podcast was proudly brought to you by Lalaman Brewing. Lalaman's presence in the brewing industry dates from the early 1970s when the company started producing dry, pure culture brewing yeasts for beer kit manufacturers in Canada. In subsequent years, this activity was expanded to the production of other specific ale and lager beer yeast strains for different clients in the United States, Europe, Australia and Asia. Supported by decades of long-standing industry experience, an extensive support network and strong technical expertise, Lanaman Brewing is positioned to help your brewery achieve its growth and quality goals. Beyond unparalleled global technical support and expertise, we offer an extensive range of products, services and education. Whether you're a startup, a global leader in peer production or anywhere in between, we have something for you. At Lalaman Brewing, we brew with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot 4 podcast this week. Don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. Hey,